Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Justice Track at the 2015 Texas Tribune Festival. Welcome to Reform is the New Black. Um, since this is the first panel of the morning on the track, I want to get a little housekeeping out of the way first. This is where the Justice Track is going to be for the duration of the day. Later today, we'll be hearing from uh, folks talking about justice in the legislature and the Court of Criminal Appeals, as well as issue-focused panels on open carry and on gay rights. Uh, however, we're going to be starting off with a nationally-focused look, um, or, you know, national and state. Uh, this, in addition to having the panels here, there's going to be a food truck lunch at the main mall, and mm -hmm. there's going to be a reception at the end of the day at the AT&T Center. If you want to be going to either of those or if you want to check out some of the other tracks we have going, there's going to be a shuttle between venues, so you can catch that. Uh, if you want to tweet during this, the hashtag is TTF, but please do have your phones on silent um, and, you know, your tweeting will be, we will catch up on your tweets afterwards rather than having to hear about it during the panel. Um, my name is Dara Lind. I'm a reporter with Vox.com. I cover criminal justice. Uh, so I've been, I'm based out of DC, but I've been able to see what Texas and other states have been doing on criminal justice reform over the last several years. And we're really in a very interesting moment where people are beginning to be aware of mass incarceration and there's a lot of energy around efforts to fix it. So we're gonna be talking now, you know, for the next hour or so, there's gonna be 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A at the end, we have microphones there if you want, um, about what's happened so far over the last several years and what still needs to be done. Uh, with me are, going left to right, uh, Rebecca Robertson, who's the legal and policy director of the state ACLU, who's worked on a bunch of issues throughout the criminal justice system. Uh, Representative Jerry Madden, who, is one of the architects of Texas's state reforms and who now as a senior fellow at Right on Crime, which is a conservative prison reform organization based out here out of Texas, has helped other states work as well. Uh, Piper Kerman, who you may know as the woman who brought us Orange is the New Black through her memoir and now the Netflix TV show and who is now a full-time criminal justice advocate doing the work of bringing mass incarceration to public awareness. Uh, Anthony Graves, who is with us thanks to having been exonerated after spending years on death row. Uh, he was exonerated in 2010 and now is the head of the Anthony Graves Foundation, which does work on reentry, community relations, and the school to prison pipeline. And Representative Mark Vesey, who was a who was minority whip here in Texas and now represents the which district? 33rd. 33rd district in Congress. Um, so to get started, I was hoping that Representative Madden could tell us a little bit about what he did back yeah. in 2006, 2007, and what he's now seen in the States sure. since then. I'm glad you, some, some of you probably heard my story, so I won't go too deeply into the story, but try to get into the stuff. But in 2005, the speaker calls me in and says, you're chairman of corrections. I'm not a lawyer. I've never had a correction bill in my life. I've never been on that committee. And he says, you're now chair of the committee. And so... Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I really appreciate that offer. And under my breath, <laughs> under my breath, I'm saying, oh, God, why me? What did I do to do this? You should have heard my staff and my wife and what they said afterwards. And it wasn't under their breath. But, but I then asked him, I said, this is the second most important question in my life. Because I asked him, well, Mr. Speaker, what do you want me to do? And he gave me the eight words that changed my life. He said, don't build new prisons. They cost too much. All right. I'm a West Point graduate and engineer by background. What is that? He just gave me a mission, a very clear mission, okay? And it's going to be important in the discussions as we go forward to understand that's number one that you got to have. It's a very clear mission of what you're trying to do, how you're trying to do it, okay? So, okay, so what do you do? Well, first of all, I try to find out anybody who knows anything about criminal justice and corrections, and, and guess what? I asked in the Texas House, and how many of you think really knew much about what happened in the prisons and the probation and paroles? And the answer was, not very many, just a very few, okay? And so, okay, uh, and so where else do I go? Well, I went across to the dark side of the Capitol, the east side, known as the Senate, and, and went over there and I said to them, the senators, okay, who knows anything over here in the Senate about criminal justice? <laughs> And they said, well, there's one guy. Now, Jerry, you're going to have to understand this. He's not of our party. He's the other party. But the important thing they said is, but on this subject, 
we trust him. Trust is another important factor you have to have. And if my Senate friends could trust him, I figured, since I knew him, I had done anything. I'd never done any work with John Whitmire before. And just, we'd met, we had some nice conversations, but nothing on criminal justice. And so I went down and sat down with John for about an hour and a half, one early February day. And we just meshed like this. Now, this is where all of this bipartisan work started, right there. In that room that day was this partnership that we basically started to build at that time, which became the partnership that passed all of the legislation we had in Texas. So bipartisanship sometimes just happens, but you got to make it, you got to work on it. And it's a critical factor in what's there in criminal justice, because now if you look at it, of all the issues that are out there, this is the one where there's a lot of bipartisan support and working together. On, on the issues, whether it be in Washington, whether it be in the states, it happened because we just happened to be the ones who were interested in the subject. I was the one that had the mission. He was the one that had the knowledge. So we started and we started looking, well, where does it happen and how, how do you make those differences? How many people do we have locked up in Texas? Michelle can answer, but it's a lot. A lot. The answer to my questions when I throw them out there, by the way, guys, is a lot. Okay? <laughs> how many people do we have on probation? A lot. Oh, they're waking up. Okay, there. How many, do we have on, how many do we have on parole? A lot. A lot. Okay, answer. One thing about Texas, it's big. Okay, and a great thing we had was we had data. Now, the governor had fired our data guy the session before we, the session we started this, but we still had him. And so we went and hired him to come work for Whitmire and myself somewhere later on in this gang because we had all the data. And that's the next important thing you have is What's the facts? Just the facts, ma'am. Remember Dragnet, just the facts, nothing but the facts. Bring you the facts. Get you the facts, okay? Well, one fact, I was born and raised in Iowa. There was a great movie 25 years ago about the state of Iowa. Anybody know what it was? Field of Dreams, right, all right? Very good, and what's the great line out of Field of Dreams? Field if you build it, they will come. Well, guess what? If you build prisons, they'll get filled, <laughs> all right? And our mission was, don't, do, don't build them, so it means you don't fill them. So how do you take that when you have a projection of population coming on? And that's where we started our work. We said, how do we change it so that people are not coming into the system? Because we had two choices, and these are the two choices. You could either open the door and let them out. If you're not going to build, you have to open the door and let people out. Or you had to figure out how to slow them down coming in. And we decided that in Texas the approach was going to be, we're going to slow them down coming in because we didn't think we could pass, open the door and let them out. And we're probably not going to fly in our legislature. So we said, okay, we're going to open the door and let them, and, and figure out how to slow them down coming, coming into the system. Now, dirty little trick, we figured out how to let some out earlier. We did. Okay? We had some stuff that was going on that we figured out we could do things faster in the system, like treat drug addicts when they were assigned to that by the parole board, move them over and get them in the program a lot quicker. And by the way, the parole board had said, you're safe to let them out as soon as they've had this program. Well, get them the program quicker. Don't leave them in there for a year waiting. You know, take that, that year is a lot of, how much does it cost for a prisoner in Texas per year? A lot. A lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm breaking it back up again. A lot. Costs a lot of money. Okay. Uh, a bunch. About 50 bucks a day, 20,000 a year. Okay. And, and by the way, we're cheap. A lot of states and federal government spend more than we do. Okay. But, okay, so we, tried, we did the things that said figure out how to slow them down. Well, where can you slow them down coming in? Okay. Well, you have a lot of people that leave prison and come back. It's called recidivism, right? right? Where, do, where do they come from? Well, most of them come off parole, but some of them repeat. And you, how do you keep them from coming back to prison? Right? That'll help if you can keep those you know, that leave. Because we have 72,000 people roughly every year leave the prisons of Texas. Leave. We have 72,000 that come in every year, too. Okay? That's a lot. But, but 72,000 leaving. Where, how do you keep them from coming back? Right? Second of all, you can do stuff while they're in the prisons. You know, they're a captive audience. Use it. You know, if, you get, if they need drug treatment, give it to them. You know, if they have mental health problems, work on them. Okay? So we decided to do some of those. We looked at probation. We had 13,000 coming in on technical revocations of probation. Technical. That doesn't mean no crime. That means they didn't show up. They probably were high on something and didn't show up for the meeting, or they were high when they showed up, or whatever it was. Okay? But we sent them on and revoked them. Okay? Can we slow that down? Can we keep people from coming in that way? Can we work in the juvenile system and, and keep them from becoming adult 
criminals, right? Can we do some things? Can we look at early childhood? We looked at all of those. And in the end, we, we expanded our drug treatment programs. We expanded the amount of money that went to mental health significantly. We looked at specialty courts and added capabilities for these specialty courts that are now working pretty darn well in Texas, the drug courts and the veterans courts and the mental health courts and all those. We expanded those things, and we said we're going to do all of those. And, oh, by the way, when they started our session in January 2007, they had projected that we were going to have 17,700 new prisoners by the year 2012. Guess what we don't have? We don't have 17,700 new prisoners by the year 2015. Okay? They're still down. and Because we, we flattened the prison population. In fact, it's dropped somewhat. And you know, we didn't build the whole new prisons to hold 17,000 people, which would cost us at least $2 billion. The taxpayers are now probably in the $3 billion range of the amount of money that we saved when we did it. So we saved money. We can send it elsewhere. That's what my appropriators loved in the bills. You know, when, when, when they had a, a, a thing in the appropriations bill in 2007 that said $530 million for new prisons, and we said, well, we're only going to spend $270,000, but by the way, we're not going to need those new prisons if you do what we got, okay? That that's what's effect happened, and that's, that's what we did in Texas. That's the start. <laughs> um, so now that we have kind of the lay of the land of what, reform could look like. I'm going to put a pin in that because we're going to be coming back to some of the things that they did in implementation later. But I wanted to, and y'all can feel free to interrupt each other. I know that we were, you know, we were having a very Mark, good Mark conversation about this before. Mark will feel free to interrupt me at any time. Um, I know that. But I was hoping <laughs> that uh, Piper and Congressman Vizi could talk some about, you know, this is, this happened in Texas, you know, 10 years ago at this point. How did this become a national conversation, a national movement? Uh, Congressman Vizi? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, if I could take a point of personal privilege, uh, before I went to the U.S. Congress and I, was, I served in the state legislature with Jerry, uh, for those of you that don't know, he is from a very, and everybody, I think everybody in here is a Texan, he's from a very conservative area in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex called Collin County. Uh, uh, Plano is one of the areas, is probably the city that most people are familiar with in Collin County. And Jerry took a lot of heat. A, a, for working on these. People said that he was soft on crime, and when all of us have to run in primaries these days, we have very few elections that matter in the general election anymore. Almost, uh, almost everything in the state legislature, the U.S. Congress now is decided in the, in the primary, and uh, Jerry took a lot of heat. Uh, but I will tell you, one of the things that really encouraged me on this particular issue is that I know that when Jerry took some heat, that a lot of the large evangelical churches there said, no, that he's, he's doing good work. We need to stand behind this guy. And, some, and I worked with some of those same churches. They came and worked with some of the African-American churches in my district all the way over in Tarrant County in Fort Worth, where 90% of the voters vote Democratic. Uh, and we were able to finally start having conversations on this topic on how we can have uh, prison reform, you know, thanks to bipartisan efforts, thanks, thanks to churches uh, working together. And I think that that is, is really important. Uh, I think on the federal level, uh, what I'm looking at now is mandatory minimums. I mean, I think that we have to eliminate most of the mandatory min uh, sentencing uh, standards that are out there. A lot of them were knee-jerk reactions to things that had happened in the 1980s, particularly when crack cocaine came onto the scene, and people wanted uh, their legislators and law enforcement to, to do more about the things that they were seeing uh, in the news. And we know that, uh, that judges' hands were often tied. They didn't think that uh, you know, certain young offenders needed these mandatory sentences, that they had to uh, do that anyway. Uh, education, I think, is, is, is hugely important. Uh, one of the things that I've been talking a lot about when I travel in my district is that even with a lot of the blue-collar jobs that I'm seeing now, uh, these kids have to have a certain level of skill set to be able to work robots, to be able to work computers, just to have a good blue-collar job. Uh, and I can tell you that particularly for young black men that graduate, that don't graduate from high school. Uh, when you look at, for instance, uh, from a, a report I read in MIT Press Journals, you look at young African-American men that were born between 1975 and 1979 that dropped out of high school. 68% of those guys end up in prison. And I'm not talking about jail time, either state penitentiary time or a federal penitentiary system. So. Anything that we can do to help educate people. I think what Jerry was talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, while we have, uh, uh, while we have them in the prison system as, as part of an, of an audience, uh, 
give them some of the job training skills that, that they needed. I know when I first came to the legislature, the Texas prison system, some of the jobs that they were, uh, an apprenticeship program that they had in the prisons were really outdated. And they really were not suitable uh, for people coming out of prison and being able to reintroduce themselves into society and reassimilate themselves. Uh, and so any type of money that we need in order to make our prison systems more uh, compatible in that area I think is important. Uh, one of the things that I can tell you that I do as a, as a, um, as a United States Congressman is first of all, I take lots of visits uh, to different places in my district. And I have a man and a women's federal uh, penitentiary system in my district, one of the old Carswell Air Force Base and one off of uh, Wichita and Fort Worth. Uh, and, and I have a job fair that I do every year. And one of the components of my job fair is that I have a, a second offenders workshop for people that need a second chance, a second chance workshop for offenders uh, and people that are coming out of the prison system that don't necessarily have the skills that a lot of us take uh, for granted. And, I, and, and on one of my visits to the federal prison system, they were telling me how much time they have to work with these prisoners on soft skills. Things that, again, that we take for granted. Being able to look someone in the eyes, being able to give someone a firm handshake, knowing how to you know, dress appropriately, uh, you know, just little things like that, that a lot, being able to deal with certain emotions when things go wrong on the job, uh, and that a lot of these prisoners have a hard time dealing with when they come back into society. And so I think that it's proven that a lot of these programs that deal with job training and education, uh, deal with, uh, helping offenders get back on their feet when they get out of prison, they do a good job as far as recidivism is concerned, and we need to see how we can continue to enhance in those areas. Um, thank you, Congressman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I do not live here in Texas. I live in Ohio, until recently I lived in New York, uh, and I, of course, have done time in the federal system, so I know exactly what you're talking about uh, in many respects. Um, we see a lot of movement across the country, and we see we are optimistic that we may be seeing some movement at the federal level, though that's, you know, I can't overstate how challenging that is. I'm sure the congressman will chime in on that. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> though we do have, you know, several really good pieces of legislation in both bodies in Washington which have substantial leadership support, which is encouraging even in this challenging environment there. Um, but truthfully, the federal system is the biggest system in the country. It's the biggest correctional system, the largest prison system. But it's still only a small fraction, really, of the 2.3 million people who we have who are in confinement, who are estimated to be in confinement right now. Because there's the federal prison system, roughly 200,000 people. Um, and then, of course, there's federal probation as well. But the name of the game is really state systems and jails. And you know the estimates for the jail population fluctuate, but generally we estimate that there's at least 400,000 people in city and county jails. So to see really substantial change in having the biggest prison population in human history, which is what we've got here, we really do need federal reform. And some of the federal reforms, frankly, um, Mandatory minimum sentencing is important, but seeing how the federal government can change its relationship to the states in terms of incenting you know, bad behavior or incenting good behavior from state governments around crime and criminal justice is really important. And some of those things are very operational rather than being by statute. Um, I am really delighted. I am very, very fortunate. I've been home from prison for 10 years. I get to do work that is important to me. I get to work with people who are really important to me, which is first and foremost the people who are caught up in the system, but also the people who operate the system. And we think about those 2.3 million people in prison and their children and their parents and their families and their communities, and those people are wholly, profoundly important to us seeing better outcomes, right? One of the most substantial changes, I think, in our recent public discourse around prisons and jails is a greater recognition that people like me and people like Anthony are actually at the heart of the discussion, and that if we are silenced people, we're not actually going to get very far. So my hope is that 
individuals and also the communities which are most affected by mass incarceration have a much more central voice in getting to better solutions. So that's a profoundly important part of reform. And you see that, I hope, more and more. I hope that that is a significant part of what is sometimes described as the movement to change and hopefully end mass incarceration. The other thing that I think is so important is that the people who operate these systems, and that includes police, and it includes prosecutors and judges and you know, wardens and other correctional workers and probation officers, have the opportunity to think about how their jobs are going to change if we're ever actually going to get to the point where we are no longer the most incarcerated society in America. Because that's also hundreds of thousands and really probably millions of people who are affected by the kind of change that we want to see. And realistically, you know, those people have to, first of all, have their own good ideas about how to do things differently, recognized and rewarded. And for those people who are you know, not really getting on board with changing the way that, you know, the sort of status quo, you know, they need to be held more accountable. And that's true whether you talk about prosecutors who don't do the way the things that the law dictates. And that's true about judges who don't necessarily always utilize sentencing reforms that legislatures pass. So in Ohio, where I work right now, you know, Jerry and I were talking about, they passed some good you know, sentencing reform and other red legislative reforms just a few years ago, and yet their prison population hasn't really budged, and part of that is because prosecutors and judges in the counties that send the most people into the state prison system haven't started doing things differently. They sort of are continuing to do business as usual. So that's not an insignificant ask, right? That gives you sort of a sense of the time horizon of you know, what it's going to take to really get to substantive change. I will tell you that I am profoundly optimistic, though, because some of the people that I meet most frequently are young people, including people who are studying criminology, people who intend to go work in the system. I was in Michigan Wednesday, I think, and I was ecstatic because I gave a lecture at a college, but one of the instructors in the Correctional Officers Academy brought his class of like 20 future correctional officers to come and listen to me talk. And that sort of is what I mean about recognizing that people who have been incarcerated, people who have that kind of firsthand experience with the system, have something valid to say. And I was thrilled to see those cadets in uniform sitting front of center, and they had lots of really good questions once we got to the Q&A session. So I am optimistic, though I'm not naive, about um, the, the bulk of work that lies ahead of us. So uh, as tempting as it is to <coughs> dive right into the, into the prosecutors, uh, I want to, you know, I, Mr. Graves and uh, Ms. Robertson, I know that both of you have thoughts on some of the, you know, We've laid out a lot of things that could be changed. Um, I know that you guys have opinions on what has been changed and how successfully it's been done and what could be done next. So, uh, Anthony, if you want to talk some about that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> talk, about, talk about funding. Yeah, well, I mean, number one, we definitely have a big problem with our criminal justice system. Okay? Let's just all, we can all agree to that. But, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic just like Piper because I go around the country and I talk to a lot of youngsters and just the questions that they ask and the responses, it tells me that, you know, people want the system to work, okay? They really want the system to work, but those people are not in the system yet. Those that really, that should really want the system to work are the ones that are, not, that are in the way of the system working, okay? And when I talk about that, I think everybody knows I have an issue with prosecutors. Prosecutions, because I think prosecutors are the engine to our system. You have to understand we have a, a plea bargain system now. Hardly do we go to trial. So you know that prosecutors have firsthand in terms of our population. How many people they're sending, how, how long they're sentencing them. They're not getting their trial. They prosecutors are plea, these are plea deals. And so the majority of the people that are down there on plea bargain deals. And some of them didn't even do what they plead, plead out, but they was afraid to stand up for themselves because they had no resources. And the prosecutor already told them that if you stand up, I'm going to try to give you as much time as I can if you don't take the time that I'm already offering. 
So you imagine a young man sitting out with no resources, no attorneys, or his, his attorney is just an inexperienced attorney, just got out of law school, and they're telling him they're going to give him the maximum sentence for a crime he did not commit if he doesn't take this six months or if he doesn't take this 10 years. And he looks and he calculates and he said, well, if I take the 10 years, I can be home maybe in three. But if I don't take the 10 years, they're, gonna talk, they're talking about putting me away for life. So I'll take the 10 years even though I ain't did nothing, but I know I'll be back home. Well, look, when you take that 10 years, now your life is totally messed up because you got that X on your back. Now there's no government assistance programs for you at all. Your life has changed completely, even though you didn't go down there. Or, or you didn't, or you took a plea, still your life has changed completely. So I, I always say that, look, if we really want to talk about reform, we have to form, re reform around what I think should be the gold standard of justice in our system, and that is the prosecutor's office. There needs to be panels, just like uh, oversight committees, just like they have for judges and things, for prosecutors, okay, to make sure that they are not abusing their power. Right now, there is no oversight. Okay? They'll run amok. They do what they want to do. They control the system. You think about it. You have to go through this office to either go to prison or get put on probation or whatever. So this prosecutorial office, I think, is the key to reform. But it has to start with not just words on paper. It has to start with the mindset. It has to start with the heart. You have to want the system to work. That's where we're having a problem at because we got too much politics in our system. So we're thinking when, when it comes to this young man's life, uh, do I do what's right or do I do what can get me elected? Okay? And I think that a lot of that is on us because we created a system for politicians that, I mean, for, for prosecutors that makes them politicians. Okay? You either, you either give us results or we replace you through an election process, which is, I think is really bad for us on a local level. We should not be electing prosecutors. We should be selecting them, okay? Because once you elect them, you put them under this political cloud that either they produce these results or they get replaced. So now they're, they're faced with these, this thing of either I cut corners and get this conviction or I tell the truth and the public going to say I'm soft on crime and they're going to replace me. I think that falls on us, you know? I think we have to let prosecutors know, no, we, we want you to do the right things. We don't want you to cut corners, and we have to do that in terms of reforming our laws and statutes around that office. Uh, I definitely believe, though, we can write all the words on paper talking about making change. We can pass the best laws. If they're not funded, and if hearts haven't changed, <laughs> the practice will remain the same. So that's kind of where I want to end it at with that. So. <laughs> So I appreciate that Anthony focuses on prosecutors uh, to sort of illustrate the range of issues that we have to deal with. Uh, I think the policy decisions that we've made as a country over the course of the last several decades that have gotten us here have been multifaceted, and so the solutions have to be multifaceted. Um, and I feel like uh, sitting here next to Jerry Madden, it's easy sometimes for us to focus on things like money uh, and I think there should probably be some other outcomes that we should be interested in when we're talking about reform. You know, certainly at the ACLU, one of the ones that we're most interested in is racial disproportionality. Um, I think all of us recognize, all of us look at those numbers about who's incarcerated, and we can say that there's no reason that men of color should be so disproportionately impacted. But it's really bigger than that because all of the social costs of mass incarceration are disproportionately borne by urban communities of color. We're talking about the impacts on families, and we're talking about the impacts on the larger communities in which those families are embedded. And so for me, one of the things that I'd like to see us turn to as we talk about reform is measuring potential reforms and measuring new policy proposals. If we're proposing new crimes at the Texas legislature, let's talk about what those social costs are going to be, and let's evaluate those <coughs> options based on um, those impacts that they're going to have in the communities that we care about. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Talk no, I, when she was talking about race and all of that, I, it just dawned on me that you know, one of the things that we don't talk about, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a big problem, is there's a lack of diversity in the DA's office. 95% of elected DAs are white. Okay. Two-thirds of the counties that 
have those DAs have no black ones. Yet 40% of the people incarcerated are black. So if you got 95% of your prosecutors white, how can we talk about fairness across the board? How does that look? 95% of the people that the most important office in our criminal justice system is white. And 40% of the people that are incarcerated is black. So if we're talking about uh, reforms, one of the things we have to do is create diversity in our DA's office. I think that goes to solving a lot of these problems. You know. So now that we uh, have, are, are now talking about race, which could otherwise be the elephant in the room, I want to make sure to uh, talk to Representative Madden, who <laughs> I know that in your work you know, in Texas, that was something that you that was not as much in the discussion. I want to you know, right. ask why that was and well, sure, what the challenges sure. are. Because I'm, I'm a believer that we have too many people incarcerated, period. Whether it's black or white or Hispanic, there's too many. And so the fact we were trying to do is drive down the overall prison population. If you do that, you send more black men home, you send more Hispanic men home, you send more white men home, okay? If you do it right. And, and that's the way the pub, to, for the public to perceive it particularly when you've got elections, and you do, and you know, those of us who are doing the policies, you know, we had to at least think about the, the election process on it, that you, know, you, had to, you had to think about it, I think, in bigger terms. So I, I try to think in, in the, the big process terms. Racial uh, disparities are one of the major problems within the system. I, I will certainly agree with, with everybody on that. Okay? But... There, there are ways. See, we did a lot of things we didn't do in Texas. We didn't, you know, we got accused of picking the low-hanging fruit. How much low-hanging fruit is there out there in the federal system? Oh, a lot. Oh. Well, the answer is a lot. lot. All of okay? it. All, How much is out there in every state system? Less. Uh, my argument to everybody was, well, start off by at least picking the low-hanging fruit in your state or, your, or the federal system. Pick it. Go get it. I mean, if it's easy to get, we should have done it a long time ago. And so, you know, that's what we went after. We did not do any sentencing changes, okay? None in Texas. Does that need to be done in the system? Yes, okay? Did we do it then? No, why? Because, you know, we were looking at, I was looking at trying to put things together that we got agreement on. Because one of the great things we had in Texas was we had think tanks. And in criminal justice, we had think tanks, both on the right and the left. Texas Public Policy Foundation that I now work for was out there on the right. Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, uh, was, was there on the left, ACLU was there, others were there on the left, but we had them. And the great thing I heard when I was doing bills, particularly in the first session in 2005, was when they started talking, you know what they were saying? Almost the same thing, maybe a little different language, but they were recommending the same things on 80% of the items. Well, go pick 80%. If you get the degree on 80%, you can get a conservative, liberal mixture that will support what you're trying to do. So we put together these think tanks, and when, when the governor vetoed our first probation bill in, in 2005, as I say, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to us because it made us go back and look at the whole system. And in doing that, I assigned the, the, the think tank people to go look at the probation bill we did and say, come back to me so that in 2007, when we go up with this legislation, we will have support and we can get it passed. Okay? They did that. We also put together a group of staffers and looked at the programs we had in the system to ask the basic question, do they work? Do we have enough of them? If they don't work, what are we going to do with them? Like programs <laughs> that we're doing education for that they couldn't get a job in because they couldn't get a license. I mean, you kill that program, okay, or change the licensing. That's about the only choices you really had. But, but spend your money wisely on the things that work. Because we were looking at, well, what, what works? And the great thing is about the numbers is we knew generally what worked. And we knew that, for example, if you give a drug treatment program to a, to a person with a drug, drug habit, are you going to break that? Sometimes. If sometimes it's better than doing nothing, then you ought to do it. You will not get everybody. I mean, even if you give the program to 1,000 people, you know that some of them are, are going to go back out work right out and start doing drugs. But if you can reduce the number, and that's why Texas was so good an example, is we had enough numbers to show that, yes, if you did this program, you'd get a 15% or a 10% reduction in the number of people coming back to prison. You know what? That's big numbers in Texas. 
know what we did at parole, for example, the, the, the parole division. I'm going to give them a lot of credit in Texas. We had, when we started in one year, they had about 22,000 reviewed, and they had 11,000 of those people that they released came back to prison. 11,000. That's not a very good rate, right? That's a lot. What we did and with our changes in the parole system, giving them more resources, giving them more support, doing programs in the prisons. Last number I saw said that that year they, they had 28, 29,000 that they actually released and only less than 6,000 returned. Guys, we went from 10,000 out of 20,000 to 6,000 out of 28,000 that the parole things worked, okay? And, and that reduces the number of people coming into your prison, coming back into your prison. Go look at the programmatic things that work and, and make them in there. So there are programs, I think, that will change the racial disparity. I think there's some good programs that you start talking about, that you start looking at and say, does it work? And if it does, what's the results it's going to get? Because you've got to remember in this field, you're never going to be perfect. You're not going to get there. Okay? But, but you can have a reasonable expectation of results that will, in fact, make improvements in the system. And everyone you make will make, will make great strides. This is a, one of the things we had was Tony Fabello did our workforce, and he did a projection of all the kids. Where, where were kids' school dropouts coming from? And where were unwed mothers coming from in the community? And where were, you know, where were the criminal justice things? And where did the prisoners go back to when they left prison? And you know what? They're, 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 they're all connected. And you realize then that the things that you do can affect all these other systems. They can affect your welfare system. If you've had a man back and working in the community and not in prison, yeah, you're going you're gonna to have probably more taxes, but you're also going to have a family structure that's probably better. Okay? You're going to have improvements throughout the whole system. Go do those things. Because you know, I was looking at, we did one called the Nurse Family Partnership. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Nurse Family Partnership or not, but it's a great program. Okay? Great one out there that, that goes with infants, that goes with mothers, first-time mothers, low income. Okay? and provides a nurse for the first two years of their life from the 26th week of pregnancy on. And that, to me, is when, I, when, it, when it passed, I said, you know what, this is the one that's going to change everything because the numbers that they have are just were absolutely fantastic. The guy who did the program was just hit it absolutely right on his stat statistics and data for an engineer like me to see <laughs> how well that worked and how, how, how much it can do. And if you did it you know, throughout the whole society, what effect would it have on keeping families together and keeping mothers out of prisons and out of jails and keeping kids out of prisons and jails and providing good mothering for kids? What a wonderful program that has actually turned out to be. So, you know, there's, there's stuff out there uh, that, that you can be really encouraged by. So this kind of approach, the, you know, looking at the data and seeing what works is often described as a smart-on-crime approach. You'll hear a lot of politicians talking about that. Um, and Rebecca, I know that you have thoughts on that approach and whether it's sufficient. I mean, I think, my, I think my question for it is I, I certainly can talk the smart on crime talk because that's what gets us results at the Texas legislature. That's how we need to talk about it if we want Texas lawmakers to listen to us. Um, but I think we also can ask a question about whether we're being fair on crime. Uh, I think one of the measures of our, the success of our criminal justice system is whether we, the people who, are, um, who it's meant to protect, uh, believe that it is serving our interests. Is it fair to us? Is it fair to the people who we incarcerate? Do the people get there in a way that's fair? Some of the issues that Anthony's pointed out about um, uh, how prosecutorial discretion plays into this. Um, I, I would like to see us ask those same sorts of evidence-based questions, uh, not just about the money, uh, but also maybe about uh, does this policy have a disproportionate impact on certain communities in a way that's really unfair? I mean, and I think particularly of policing, that we over-police certain communities. Um, you know, it's certainly the case that a lot of the folks who are in our prisons and jails for low-level drug crimes are people of color, uh, and it's not because they commit those crimes more often than Anglos. It's because they uh, have encounters with the police more often than Anglos that lead to searches and um, you know other kinds of encounters that lead them to prisons and jails. So I do think there are important questions to ask about fairness um, that. It, it, the money is not the only thing to consider. I, I would echo that, and I would say um, that there's a central philosophical question that lies before us as Americans around the question of, of harsh punishment and whether yes. harsh punishment works for us as a society or whether it doesn't work as, per, as well, perhaps, as sort of philosophically we've really thought it has for a long time. It's ironic that we're here in Texas, notoriously tough, 
there is actually a book called Texas Tough by, I believe, Robert Pattinson or Parkinson is his last name, a fascinating book about the, the Texas penal system. And he chose to write that book because uh, Texas has really been copied by many other states in terms of its philosophical approach to meeting disorder, crime, transgression in the community. But I think, you know, the rise of mass incarceration, you know, has been driven by many things, including um, racism and racial control, including money. Um, but on a fundamental level, what we see is just this idea of harsh punishment being carried forward, right? So, you know, this idea of harsh punishment, we sort of build layers and layers, and that's how we end up with, you know, people sentenced to 25 years in prison for a first-time nonviolent drug offense. Oh, and by the way, that's a person of color. <laughs> so I think we are actually at a very interesting moment where there are some little fissures in that idea that harsh punishment gets us good results as a community, as a society. I, I teach now in a men's medium security prison in Ohio, and I've got 11 guys in my class. Um, three of them are doing life. Many of them have been convicted of very serious offenses. And they write about their own lives in class. And some of them have chosen to write about their offenses. Some of them have not. But as they write about their lives, there's definitely a lot of violence uh, that they've been the victims of sometimes or that they've been exposed to. And what our response as a community is going to be, particularly to violence, is very, very important. I often reflect on the fact that you know, from particularly men who have sometimes done things that have hurt other people, um, that we put them into places which are the most hierarchical, dominance-oriented, and that function basically predicated on a threat of violence, that that's our response to violence is a very curious question. And so this question about how do we intervene in the behaviors that are most harmful to us as a community earlier and more preventatively? How do we respond to harm caused? How do we provide victims of crime and violence and people who have been hurt by others with better you know, healing and recompense than the construct of a jail cell? Uh, you know, We're a long way away from completely embracing that question as a nation, but I feel like there are cracks in our you know, unified addiction or, or um, uh, fealty to the idea that harsh punishment is the way to get better outcomes for us as a community and be safer. Uh, let me just say, I, I want to echo some of the concerns uh, about what happens in the prosecutor's office. My last year here in the Texas legislature uh, was uh, the 2011 session. And I was able to get a bill passed that rewrote part of the Texas expungement code. But along that way, it was really interesting um, how much some people from the District Attorneys Association really fought me on that. And basically what the bill did was if prosecutors weren't going to charge someone for a crime uh, after a certain time period, then they, then they needed to have their record expunged. Because what was happening was that, let's say that someone was uh, arrested uh, for a, a serious crime but never charged. Some, some of those offenses, particularly if it's like a very violent offense, uh, it may not ever come uh, off of your record, even though you've never been convicted. And so we had one young lady in Tarrant County, which is my hometown, and uh, she was not able to, to get a job in education because of uh, something that had happened to her. But uh, when, she, when she was 17, 18 years old, uh, and it was uh, impeding her from, from getting a job in her college career area. And we actually had a Republican judge come and testify on behalf of the bill. Uh, but the DA's office fought us along the way. And I'll never forget one of the uh, Republicans sitting on the panel that's, that, asked, that said, well, just because you haven't been charged doesn't mean you're not innocent. Uh, and you know, with that kind of attitude that's prevalent uh, in the system, we know that there, there are some issues at, at the DA level that really has to be addressed. Uh, for those of you that have never been to Fort Worth, I can tell you that we have one of the, for, we, we, it's a very large, diverse, City. We have about 800,000 people that live in the city of Fort Worth, um, and, uh, and we have crime issues just like anyone else does. Our downtown area is very safe. I bet you in downtown Fort Worth in the last 20 years, 
we probably had, we've only had one shooting. Uh, the shooting that occurred was uh, uh, probably about 15 years ago, and it was between a gentleman from a very wealthy family and a guy that was from a very middle-class family, both white, both white. Uh, and it was on the news, and uh, uh, the, 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 the guy from the wealthy family said it was self-defense. The other guy said that it wasn't self-defense. And because uh, the family probably had connections, neither one of them ever went to trial. They worked something out. Uh, uh, the kid from the middle-class family is, uh, was able to, uh, to go to graduate school after it happened. And the other guy went on about his life. Those type of deals are never worked out between two young black men or two young Latino men that shoot each other. Uh, and so, you know, why aren't those sort of situations also being presented to everyone in the community? So there are some real, real issues out there uh, that need to be worked at on, on the, at the DA's level because I do think that there is a mentality uh, that uh, their job is to put people in jail by some of them, that, that, that their goal is, 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 you know, you're guilty until proven innocent. And, and, and I think that they're doing it because they think they're doing it for a good cause, because they want to, they, we don't want to have anarchy in our society. I just got back from Honduras, uh, back, I was in Honduras and Guatemala back in March. They have kidnapping rings there, and they kidnap people right off the streets. And if you don't pay, uh, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if a member of your family or a friend is kidnapped and you don't pay them, they'll basically kill them. There's about a 1% uh, prosecution rate on these kidnapping rings. So guess what, they continue to do it. We don't want to live in that type of society, and so I, I appreciate the work that our DAs do, but if there is some reform that needs to take place on that level, let's not be in denial about it, and let's get to work and get it done. So uh, we could talk about this stuff all day. We could go out to brunch and talk about it. What do you guys want to know about? We have a terrific brain trust up here, and there are so let many me, issues me, we haven't let me touched add yet. A couple things. <laughs> can, they, can they be quick? <laughs> People quick. can go ahead and Real line quick. up with the yeah, mics and ask questions. Okay, uh, Piper got one thing right that you should understand. There is not one criminal justice system in the United States. There are 51 at least in the United States that, that we have. So each one is different. You have to know what's in, in each system that you have to be able to impact that particular system. Mm -hmm. All right. Go ahead, sir. Hi. Good morning. Uh, this is directed, or excuse me, this is kind of based on Anthony's um, thesis on prosecution reform. But my question can be for the whole panel. It's really, what do you guys believe could be done or could incentivize prosecutors to establish sentences on a more empathetic <coughs> or progressive nature? Like, you guys mentioned something of a sort of prison quota that you want to reach to kind of um, appear like you're fulfilling your role as a justice in the Justice Department, right? So what can be incentivized to um, lessen the sentences or make it so that it's more fair of a justice system? I can start on that. Definitely. So uh, I'll just I'll share with you the example of New York, where I used to live. So New York is the state that is one of the states that has reduced its prison population the most, somewhere between 20 to 23 percent reduction, which is a very substantive reduction if you think about that nose count. And in New York, it costs sixty thousand dollars a year to lock somebody up. So that uh, is a reduction which is really, really significant. So how did that happen? New York did several things, and several other states have done similar, though not identical things, because Jerry's point is apt. Every system is a little different. New York reformed its Rockefeller drug laws, so it stopped sending so many people into the prison, state prison system for drug offenses. Um, it, uh, it accompanied that with giving more and more options to prosecutors and judges for alternative sentencing. And Jerry mentioned earlier drug courts, mental health courts, veterans courts, other alternatives to the cell as an accountability measure. And finally, they also did some substantive parole reform, and that is a really important part of any significant reduction in a prison system. And so, those reforms wouldn't have worked if district attorneys and judges in the New York City area hadn't used them. Because the New York City area overwhelmingly sends the majority of people into that state prison system. And so, you know, prosecutors like Cy Vance in Manhattan 
really wanted to do things differently. I mean, he, he is really committed to um, figuring out how to have a safe community and yet also have a just community and not rely so heavily on incarceration. So you need to show people that this is possible. The last thing I would just want to say about New York as an example, and I could have talked about New Jersey, I could have talked about California, I could have talked about South Carolina, which is coming along, um, is that the states in this country that have reduced their prison populations the most have also enjoyed the biggest declines in violent crime and in property crime. By they have beat the national average. And crime is down almost everywhere in this country, not necessarily by neighborhood. There are some neighborhoods that, and communities that continue to be plagued with serious crime. But nationally, crime rates are way down. They've been down for a long time. And what's important to recognize is that we have long passed that tipping point where prisons were making anybody safer. And now, reducing our prison populations is actually going to contribute to our safety. And so when prosecutors, especially, and judges, recognize that and work in collaboration with you know, changes in policing, hopefully, um, that's where we get to a better place. But that, that recognition that, you know, that those harsh prison sentences aren't actually fundamentally making us safer in the broad sense is so important. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I just wanted to know what, if there's a lot of energy or traction when it comes to ensuring the safety of trans people in these systems, and like especially trans people of color, this might really be a question for Rebecca, and what that picture looks like realistically, because I know I've, I've read a lot of things, but I just wanted to know, just I guess for all of y'all, what that looks specifically like. So that's a really terrific question, and I think we do see problems for uh, transgender uh, people who are incarcerated, whether it's at the Harris County Jail or in a, you know, immigration detention facility, uh, these are absolutely problems. Um, I think in some places, uh, implementation of the Prison Rape Elimination Act uh, can help with some of the safety issues. Um, and there are uh, signs of hope. For example, uh, the Harris County Jail, which is huge, uh, under Sheriff Adrian Garcia, implemented really a model policy for dealing with uh, transgender people who were incarcerated there. Um, so there is some, there is some uh, energy around it. There is some attention to it. Um, but uh, I think like for a lot of things for uh, transgender equality, we have a long way to go. <laughs> Sorry. Good morning. Um, I have a question for the whole panel. Um, we were studying in our class that, you know, people, if they go in with the conviction of a drug, you know, color makes a difference. Like somebody of color might get a heavier sentence than somebody that's not. And I understand that certain neighborhoods get attention from the police more than others, but what could you tell, explain why and what's being done about it? Go for it. I mean, I, I'll just go back to what I, I hopped on earlier is that 95% of your district attorneys are white, okay? So if you're coming in there as a young African-American, a Latino, most of the time, they don't relate to you, okay? You, 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 yeah, I mean, you have to create some diversity into the most important office in our criminal justice system. That's where the problem lies. You have 95% of the people, and, and I mean, just being honest, 95% of the elected DAs are white. Who do you think they relate to? I mean, I would, I would also just say about the policing, just very quickly, um, you know, it, it's just the case that uh, if you look at statistics in Texas and in other places, police encounters with people of color result in arrests, searches, prosecutions much more often than the exact same encounter. So just a traffic stop, for example, uh, result in uh, a search if you're African-American or you're Latino much more often than if you're white. Uh, and there are specific things that we can do to intervene there. For example, we can have uh, police departments adopt policies that uh, are very explicit about what's required before an officer can ask permission to search your car and very specific about uh, an, what an officer um, needs to do to document that you gave permission to search the car. So there are all kinds of things that we need to do, but it's a very big problem, um, and it's not accounted for by disproportionality in criminality. It's accounted for in the way that we police people. And it's yeah. also fair to, to say that most of the people incarcerated 
whether it be in Texas or other states, come from just certain areas, certain communities. Yes. The, the population in the Texas prisons comes, first of all, the biggest percentage are from Harris County. Yes. How about Dallas County? How about Tarrant County? How about Travis County? You know, a couple of counties down in the, in the valley. That's where they come from. They're not, you know, when you look about the prosecutors, you know, there's a lot of prosecutors out there, very small rural districts okay, on, on the numbers. But you've got to, you better be concentrating on what are your large cities, whether it be New York City in New York, whether it be Cleveland or Columbus or, or, or Cincinnati in Ohio. But you pick on, the, on those, you see those, that's where most of them are coming from. Yeah, so that's where if you get your biggest impact, you're going to get your biggest savings out of that. And let me, can I also, I want to piggyback on uh, what uh, the lawyer on the end was saying from ACLU. Uh, and this happened when Jerry and I were in the legislature together. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that about criminal justice that or, or the perception of crime that really bothers me a lot is that I'm amazed at how the public, like if you read an article in the Dallas Morning News or the Fort Worth Star-Telegram about a young African-American man that does, that commits a drive-by shooting and one person is killed, or uh, how people perceive that crime versus um, if a young white college student gets in a car and he's been drinking and he kills two or three people. I mean, people are... Outrage when people will be like, "Oh, look at all these! Look at how, look at these young black males and all the bad things they're doing." But when someone gets in their car and, and cranks up their car and kills people, people aren't nearly as outraged. And 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 so I think I have a big problem with the way that DWI is perceived and how uh, it's prosecuted versus crimes that are more commonly committed by African Americans and young Latinos. So let me let me go to what I was what I was mentioning about Jerry and I. Uh, there was uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was trying to get a DWI checkpoint bill passed. And uh, they came into my office, and, and me and several other black legislators had an issue with the bill. They wanted to set these checkpoints up. And I asked the guy, I said, are you going to set these checkpoints up in African-American neighborhoods? He said, the police will set them up wherever they think there's a problem. I said, well, <laughs> will these DWI checkpoints, let's say you have a single grandmother that has a violation for her tags being expired or her inspection being expired. And she doesn't, you don't think that she's drunk, but she comes through the DWI checkpoint in the community and she has her two grandkids in the back seat that she's raising and it's a cold night. Are you going to arrest her in this DWI checkpoint? And he couldn't answer the question. He said, I talked to the police about that. They understand your concern but they can't guarantee you that that grandmother is not going to be arrested. And so you have a situation where you're putting into code more opportunities for over-prosecution in certain areas for a bill that was intended for something totally different. Uh, can we get one more question in? Yes, excellent. excellent. Yes? Nobody is telling me no, so go for it. <laughs> Good morning. I want to thank the panelists for your time and your insight, first of all. Um, we've been doing a lot of discussion on the failings within the system, whether it's from the policing standpoint, the legal system and prosecuting, to the prisons themselves. Um, but I think a huge factor in what causes the influx of people into our prison system is kind of the shortcomings of our education system, specifically a lack of access to equal opportunity. I mean, you see lower income districts that don't provide the same resources as some of the other more affluent places where it kind of perpetuates this idea that criminal activity can sometimes be a more of a viable option for some of these students. And what I wanted to ask was, is there a space for education reform activists to partner with criminal reform activists to achieve a common goal and what that would look like, how we as voters and active citizens can let me, facilitate Let me address that one, because I have a problem sometimes in the education side. Uh, how many education institutions in the state of Texas put policemen within their schools? How many, how many? There's a whole lot. The answer is a lot, again, guys, a lot. Okay, A lot of them have policemen in there enforcing school codes and regulations. Okay? I have a problem with putting police doing that, what I think is an education process responsibility. So we drew the line on, on some of the criminal justice, juvenile justice reforms we had that, that basically some people wanted to cross the boundaries. I said ju ju juvenile justice is a criminal offense. Some of these other things that they're doing are just school policy things. And we see, for example, we had 100,000, I think was the number of, of kids at truants that were in, getting in the system because of truancy. Okay? Shouldn't be doing that. 
So, so there's a breaking point that says, yeah, it, it's important that we get education for the people. We, we do have education within the, the criminal justice system, within the prisons of Texas, and, and it's important that some of them get, get that education. Um, but I'm not one that advocates giving every prisoner education because there are some there, there are three different types of prisoners we have. Those that are always coming back, those who are never coming back, and those who may or may not come back. Don't give education to those who are always coming back. I don't want a smarter criminal. Don't need those. Okay? So that's... Yeah. And, uh, again. To, and, and I understand what Jerry is saying. I agree to a point. But those that continue to come back is because they lack education. Um, yeah, that's true. Okay? So if you want them to stop coming back, then provide them with education. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really amazing if you look at... Um, incarceration rates, particularly for African-American men. You look at 1980 and 2010 nationwide, African-American men that didn't have a, a, a high school degree that dropped out of high school in 1980, about one in 10 African-American men spent time in prison. But you fast forward just 30, you know, some odd years later, and that the number of African-American men uh, that don't have high school degrees, for that, that employment is not there anymore. And so you have a much larger percentage going to jail, like I mentioned earlier, between, for this study that I looked at, African-American males born between 1975 and 79 that don't have a high school degree, 68%, almost 70% end up in prison. And so you have to start taking a closer look at our education system. And our work is becoming so much more complex that if we don't do something now, I think that you're going to continue to see problems in this Mark, area. CSG did a great study on, on Texas. CSG is the Council of State Governments. Okay. <laughs> and, and basically, what they said is detention. And they looked at detentions on kids in the Texas system. They looked at everyone in the seventh grade in Texas between the years, what was it, 2000, 2003, I think was the years. Mm -hmm. Every student in Texas, they have numbers. Go yeah. read that report and you'll see the disparity of, of African-Americans that get detentions yes. in your school right. system. Yep. And that's the school problem, not, mm -hmm. right. not mm -hmm. the oh, that's criminal justice yeah. problem. So, so yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that if my education friends wanted to step up and do some things in the education system, yes. there's a lot of things that they can do within the current system that they don't do right now. Exactly. All right. Uh, we have probably taken up way too much of y'all's time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes.